0: Hello and welcome to Practically Healthy with Dr. Molina, where I interview some really amazing experts every week and try to take all of their wisdom and translate it into what you should do, can do, and will do. So today I'm very excited about my guest because I've known him for many years, and he's inspired me in a field that I'm very interested in, which is precision nutrition. And I'm happy to welcome Dr. Ahmed El-Sohimi, who is a professor and associate chair of nutritional sciences at the University of Toronto and also the founder of a company that I have actually worked with for the past uh, four years now in terms of their testing. It's called NutriGenomics, and they do uh, genetic testing as it pertains to nutrition predominantly. Um, And they have some other exciting things. But anyways, we're going to get into that. Let's jump right in. Welcome so much. Thank you for joining me from Canada. Good morning. Hi, Melina. (laughs) Great to see you. So let's just jump right in. Um, and I'm going to have you kind of first of off explain in your simple terms for our audience, what exactly nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics is, and then a little bit about how you got started in this field and how you, you founded a company that's very exciting.
1: Yeah. Well, as, as the, the name, um, uh, indicates the, the, science of nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics really uh, deals with the interface between nutrition and our genetic makeup. Uh, So we've known for a long time that what's good for one person is not necessarily good for somebody else. In fact, it might even be harmful. Uh, And so this is something that was known for hundreds of years, but only now do we have the tools of modern molecular genetics to be able to pinpoint specific regions in our genome that can help us understand why one person responds differently from somebody else to to caffeine, to sodium, to fiber, to to dietary fat. Uh, And so I got into this area when I was a graduate student in the uh, late 90s, working on a project looking at cholesterol uh, and cancer in animal models. And I I did this experiment where I got the complete opposite results as someone else who did this study. And the only difference between the studies were the strain of mouse that we used. So we thought, I mean, is it possible that that little difference, you know, a, a small black mouse versus a gray mouse can lead to such opposite effects? So we replicated the findings, looking at both kinds of uh, animals kind of back to back. And sure enough, one responded very differently from another. And of course, the only difference between, uh, you know, strains of mice, it's like, you know, breeds of dogs and, and individual humans is their genetics. Uh, and so at the time, I thought, well, if two different mice are going to or can respond very differently, then surely two humans will respond differently as well. Uh, And so this was uh, just before the, you know, completion of the Human Genome Project. And um, there really wasn't, you know, weren't that many labs in the world that were doing this kind of research. Uh, And so I I found one lab at uh, Harvard, Dr. Hanya Campos, who was, again, one of the very few in the world doing this kind of work uh, and trained with her before coming back to the University of Toronto and setting up my lab in this area that uh, at the time
0: I thought was incredibly exciting and I think still is. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think just to clarify a few things, I think what, so nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics, it's really first for those listeners, you know, it's a bi-directional thing. So it's how our genes influence our response to dietary components and other things, even medications, and then how nutrients can actually influence our genes as well. So there's this bi-directional. And I think what's so cool about this, and it's so, when was the human genome completed? Was it 94 that it was the mapping?
1: Complete. The first draft was around 2003. So almost 20 years ago.
0: That's amazing because yes. I have to tell you, so I, I was, you know, science nerd, and I did this program um, when I was a junior in high school at, at Harvard, uh, actually Radcliffe, um, for women in science. And that was the first time I read uh, the book, The History of the DNA, you know, double image of the double helix. That's how, that's how nerdy I was. Yes, none of you would want to date me in high school. but um, And I was just mesmerized by genetics back when I was a junior in high school. So, and it's so interesting that that, I mean, that was, you know, that would have been 87. So it was, you know, another 17 years before the human genome was even fully mapped. So that, it's amazing. But I think one of the coolest things about this field is that it explains, in my opinion, it explains a lot of the con potentially the controversy in the nutrition field. So, you know, for example, with vitamin D, when they have, you know, negative studies and they say it doesn't work or saturated fat, we don't need to limit it, whatever it is. It it may not be because it doesn't work. It may be because, you know, the population is too, it may be for 30% of the population, it as you say, it, it really doesn't work or maybe it even does harm. So that genetic variability, I think, you know, a lot of the public gets so frustrated that we can't give them clear answers and that scientists always seem to be arguing about clinical relevance and and especially in the field of nutrition. But I think, I, I don't know, do you agree that kind of genetics may explain a lot of the controversy? Absolutely. I think when the
1: kind of light bulb went off for me, I thought, wow, we need to revisit everything we've ever done in the field of nutrition. When you think of the studies where we would have uh, a control group and then some kind of intervention and then typically researchers would compare the average of one group with the average of another and there was always a lot of error in terms of standard deviation and, and variation in response but if on average everybody in this you know kind of this group was different from that group we'd conclude yes Fibre lowers cholesterol or, you know, caffeine increases blood pressure. But what about those so-called outliers, people in those different groups that consistently respond in the opposite direction? Um, You know, we need to know what to do with them and we can't give them the advice that we're giving to everybody else because that advice in some cases, as you point out, might actually cause harm.
0: Yeah, or or not benefit. So especially for me in nutrition, when I'm trying to counsel patients, I want to hone in on what is right for them, and that's this growing field of precision medicine, precision nutrition, and this is such an incredible tool. But let's get back to let's get back to you. It's not about me. <laughs> um, what was kind of the first exciting human discovery that you made, and then what prompted you to start this company, Nutrigenomics, that does genetic testing as it pertains to nutrition.
1: Yeah. So when I was living in Boston and uh, again, training with uh, Hanya in this area, um, at the time I uh, was roommates with my cousin who lived in LA and and flew out to Boston. He was in the tech business and, you know, kind of got a contract out there and I was making coffee one day and asked him if he wanted a cup. And he said, you know, I don't really like coffee very much. It makes me feel very anxious and jittery. And I thought, you know, right away at the time, I'm thinking everything is genetic. And I'm like, you know, I bet you there's a gene for that. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years later, when I came back to Toronto and set up my lab, uh, and continued to collaborate with Hanya, where we looked, we had an opportunity to study uh, one of the cohorts there. Uh, and we looked at uh, a gene that was known to metabolize caffeine or break it down. And it turns out there were two major forms of this gene, a fast acting version and a slow acting version. And what we found was that while this gene did not predict how caffeine made a person feel in terms of those immediate um, behavioral uh, uh, or stimulating effects that we feel, but it turned out it was linked to a risk of a heart attack. And those who had the slow acting version of the gene In other words, they were not able to get rid of caffeine uh, efficiently. Increasing cups of coffee was linked with a higher risk of of heart attack. Whereas in the fast metabolizers, we found the opposite effect, where moderate consumption of coffee actually lowered the risk of a heart attack. So this is in the same population. We just separated them by this one genetic variant that affected how they metabolize caffeine. Uh, so we published that in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, and that was kind of our, our uh, first really exciting finding in this field because it meant that, you know, all those, those dozens and dozens of studies on coffee and heart disease that showed conflicting findings, one day coffee is good for us, one day it's bad for us, one day it doesn't do anything, could be answered by this simple uh, tests where you actually look at a particular gene and separate people based on how they actually break it down. And,
0: and you obviously looked at, this- You looked at that with athletic performance too, just because I think that's a right. very powerful- tool, not a heart attack, but also for athletic performance, if a percentage of athletes, because caffeine is the only legal performance enhancing drug, really. So tell us a little bit, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I think, you know, it's just, it's just exciting to think about the potential applications and how, you know, what was it? The one man's, uh, health is another, is another man's poison. Yes, exactly. I think Lu- yeah. who said that Lucretius uh- uh, Lucretius Yeah, yes. back
1: in the first century BC.
0: Yeah, no. So uh, it's, it's, really it's
1: quite remarkable that it was, um, you know, recognized so far back. Uh, but as you point out, yeah, I mean, it's not just other aspects of nutrition, but, you know, any application of caffeine. And so I was presenting these findings at uh, the Dietitians of Canada conference. This was back in, I think, 2012. And uh, a sport dietitian uh, named Nancy Guest came up to me and said, uh, "You know, this is the—I think this is the future of sports nutrition." Um, You know, she was the head dietitian for the Vancouver Winter Olympics and the Pan Am Games, and so she joined my lab and and did her PhD in this area on caffeine and endurance performance in athletes. Uh, And sure enough, we found that again, caffeine has the complete opposite effects, Um, even in those who think caffeine actually benefits them and they use it regularly. When we measure them in a clinical setting and under blinded conditions, we actually find that it, it impaired their performance. So they might feel, you know, they're more jacked and they're actually performing better, but in some, based on their genetics, they're, the caffeine is actually diminishing blood flow to their muscles and that's actually impairing their performance. So You have to know your genetics.
0: Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So then what made you take this? um, You're a scientist, not all scientists, then go on to form companies. How did that happen? Tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely never, you know, considered myself an entrepreneur. And otherwise, I wouldn't have pursued this path of, you know, getting a PhD and and getting into academia. Uh, And it wasn't until... Uh, 2011, so just 10 years ago. So I had already been a, you know, a uh, a tenured professor and, you know, doing research and publishing in this field and teaching. Um, And every time I would present uh, some of the work that we've been doing, you know, someone in the audience would say, you know, where can I get tested? And initially for the, you know, first little while, my usual conservative academic had on, I would respond by saying, well, you know, it's, we're not quite ready for that, you know, we need to see the science replicated. Um, And since then, the science has been replicated uh, by other researchers from around the world. So other companies started you know, uh, or companies basically started selling these tests uh, directly to consumers online, uh, and they were obviously citing our research, uh, which was kind of flattering to see that our research was actually being commercialized and being uh, put to practical use. Uh, but then, as you know, some people were sending me some of these sample reports from various companies. We're looking at them. And I'm like, well, that's not what our research showed. Uh, there were no regulations, and a lot of these early companies were just you know misinterpreting the science. Uh, and then some of them were linking their genetic tests to ridiculously overpriced supplements when the science didn't justify that. So that was kind of tainting the work that we're doing because it was viewed as, you know, uh, something that's not rooted in science. So we had an opportunity to uh, through a uh, program that's here in Canada uh, for faculty members to, um, you know, to establish startup companies. And we thought, well, you know, we need to restore credibility to uh, not the science, but the application of it. Uh, And so I had approached some colleagues um, like, you know, Jose Ordovas from Tufts, who is, you know, one of the leaders in the field.
0: And my alma uh, mater, Tufts. Woo, go Jumbos.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> amazing research coming out of Tufts and um, uh, Bruce German from UC Davis and some others, uh, Ben Van oman from Nugo. Um, and I asked them if they would be interested in, in being part of a science advisory board so that we can make sure that the science is being translated in a responsible manner. Uh, and so they were, you know, certainly on board. Uh, and we also decided to make the test available only through Uh, qualified healthcare professionals rather than just trying to sell something over the internet and, you know, and get a big market share. It was more of, you know, we're in it for the long haul. And we want to make sure that this information is delivered in a responsible manner through a healthcare professional, either a registered dietitian or a physician who has had access to our training uh, materials, uh, and they can address the concerns that people have around uh, genetic testing.
0: Yeah, that's a really important point. I want to stop you because I think this is, you know, you and I have talked about this and I've interviewed you for CNN actually about this. What are the, I mean, this is still happening with direct-to-consumer genetic testing where the kit, you can order it online and get your fancy report. And like you said, they're you know generally trying to upsell you on something, whether it's a program based on the results. So tell, ta- let's talk in more detail about the limitations and why people really need to proceed with caution with all this self-testing that's available now online. What are, what are some of the issues?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great question, and and there are so many issues. Um, you know, one I'm just thinking of. I just this weekend uh, I received an email from uh, a practitioner that I know who was interested, or sorry, they had they had a friend who was interested in uh, a particular test that was available direct to consumer, uh, and you know, she asked me my thoughts about that particular company, and so I just decided to kind of take a peek at their privacy policy. And I was just amazed to see. And that's something that I bet you, you know, 99.9% of people just don't read. How many times do we just scroll to the bottom, just click accept? You've already made your decision. You want it. I know I'm guilty of that when I download various apps and, you know, but I just assume that they're tracking everything that I'm doing. Uh, And sure enough, that is what, you know, those kinds of companies are doing. But for this particular company, you know, they even say, well, you know, we, you are authorizing us to send your personal information to third parties uh, overseas. They specify overseas in other wow. and other companies, and to advertisers, and all your health information. So everything that you disclose about yourself, really personal and private and what should be confidential health information, you are giving it to complete strangers, and you're authorizing them to sell it or give it away to yet other strangers and do who knows what with that. So we felt it was important. Oh, and and obviously, they're going to do research on you based on whatever information, and they'll try to sell you supplements and other things that were might not be justified. But, you know, they've, they've, got your attention, and and they know some things about you. Um, So, you know, we felt it was very important to, again, go through healthcare professionals, because in that regard, this information, your genetic, your personal and private genetic information is then treated like any other health information that a healthcare professional, a physician or a dietitian uh, need to treat it, Um, obviously has to be HIPAA compliant. And we get samples at our lab at our lab that just have a barcode. So again, sometimes you know, new practitioners that sign up with us, they're like, "Oh, there's no requisition. I don't have. Where do I write my patient's information and their date of birth and and all and their mailing address?" And we're like, "We don't need to. You just enter their barcode and their first name. You have your charts, so you know who that patient is or that client. Uh, and so we maintain that." Uh, anonymity. Uh, And so that's obviously very important. And there's all kinds of other factors. I mean, um, there have been, I don't want to name any, you know, well known genetic testing companies that do also kind of ancestry testing, and they advertise heavily. But I I know someone very close to me who uh, got a result that said, you do not have the genes for celiac disease. But It was clear that, you know, she had many symptoms and uh, actually had done our test where we look at six genetic markers for celiac rather than the two that this other company looks at. And she had the highest risk gene for it. And sure enough, went uh, underwent serology testing for antibodies and had sky high levels of Uh, tissue transglutaminase, which is a marker of celiac disease. So you can get a lot of wrong information, misinformation. I mean, you can imagine someone who gets that and they all of a sudden, in their minds, they're ruling out celiac disease, and they're just not going to you know, consider that. And meanwhile, they can have all kinds of neurological problems, GI problems. And cancer seizures.
0: long term. Yeah, there is a potential cancer, risk of cancer. Yeah. Yep.
1: lipoma is a major uh, one that goes up and, and other mood disorders. So again, there's a danger in using um, or relying on some of this you know health information that is not really coming from a credible source so it's it's unfortunate because the regulations are pretty uh, loose uh and it's you know it's kind of buyer beware but i feel bad for consumers because they're none the wiser you know they're taken by you know fancy marketing uh rather than asking a trusted healthcare professional is this particular test something that I should be doing?
0: Yeah, and I think for, for me too, as I navigate more and more reports, I think it's very important to have perspective on the clinical relevance of different genetic markers and how to bring them together effectively into total patient care, because it can be overwhelming But it also can, you know, you you have to kind of choose what your targets, you know, a patient just like with anything in medicine, they don't come in and you're not going to put them on 25 different medications on the first visit or approach 25 different risk factors, you have to hone in. And I think it requires some clinical skills and training to be able to help the patient truly utilize this to either optimize health or prevent disease. So I, I applaud you for sticking with the, you know, practitioner-only uh, uh, distribution method because I think there's, there's tremendous value in, in that in terms of really using these results. But that brings me to another question, and I know you've done research on this or at least written um, review papers, is... And this is something that I, I have to tell you I'm still struggling with and because and, I've been in the nutrition field for over 20 years. And, you know, the more I learn, the more I'm excited to apply it to my patients. And yet compliance, like I can, you know, somebody, it's amazing to me. I had a patient who was a doctor who had an emergency quintuple bypass. And I thought, okay, this is what it's really going to take to get him to take his health seriously And he did for about six months and then he did it. And I saw him several years later and he was back to his not so healthy ways. So talk a little bit about kind of the behavior of change and what you've seen in terms of when people learn what their DNA might dictate in terms of change. How effective is that?
1: Yeah, it's an excellent point. Uh, And when I think back, um, maybe around 15 years ago, uh, again, presenting this work at a conference uh, and this other researcher who uh, was, you know, involved in kind of behavioral type research uh, got up and said, well, okay, that's fine. And dandy that you can tell us that some people respond differently based on their genetics, but, you know, people aren't going to change their behaviors because look, we've been telling people to quit smoking and still, they you know, they continue and, and all this kind of uh, advice. And we thought, well, you know that's an interesting question we don't know what people would do with genetic information so we decided to test it in fact there was um you know so one hypothesis is that someone will say oh i have this you know risk gene that tells me that i have you know salt sensitive hypertension so not not just generalized hypertension but specifically if I consume too much sodium. So that's going to motivate me and I'm going to cut back on sodium. And and that's, you know, kind of one hypothesis. But the flip side is something that's, you know, akin to genetic determinism or genetic fatalism, where a person might say, you know, it's in my genes, there's obviously nothing I can do, you know, pass me the salt and leave me alone. Well, you know, that really applies to disease causing genes. So if you tell someone, look, you have the gene that leads to early onset Alzheimer's. And other than just, you know, the generic recommendations for lowering your risk of Alzheimer's is nothing you can do specifically. Well, then, yeah, that becomes problematic. Uh, but when it comes to telling someone or giving them actionable genetic information, and this, again, I think is a is a point i just want to emphasize because not all genetic information is actionable some tests just tell you you have a you know a higher risk of heart disease so you know good luck with that so well you can try doing the generic things that someone with you know heart disease might be recommended to do uh, but it's not really personalized or you know precise recommendations so anyhow so we decided to test this and and using the gold standard, randomized, controlled clinical trial, where we got a group of people, we gave one group DNA-based dietary advice, and the other, the standard of care, the general recommendations that we give people. And we found that those who got the DNA-based dietary advice actually Um, were more indicated that they were more motivated to change their eating habits, they wanted to learn more, um, and they understood their reports more using a a nine point Likert scale. So we actually measured it uh, quantitatively. And we found that after a year of following them up, those who got the DNA based dietary advice, actually stuck to those recommendations to a greater extent. And the biggest effect that we saw was with sodium reduction, So those who were told they got the gene for salt-sensitive hypertension, they lowered their sodium by almost 300 milligrams, and they maintained it uh, up to one year later. So in terms of uh, a valuable clinical tool that can help improve compliance, when you tell someone, you know, forget about all this general advice that you're bombarded with, this applies to you because of your genetics they're going to retain that and it's going to stick with them and the evidence shows. So we did the very first clinical trial on this. Others have since uh, done similar types of studies and then all shown the same thing, that if you give people the right kind of genetic information, coupled with specific actionable advice, they will actually listen to it more and stick with it and that results in uh, greater improvements.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Cause I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Right, like 15, approximately 15% of the population have that gene for the salt, real salt sensitivity, hypertension, correct? Mm-hmm. Is it is that the numbers or might be a bit higher? Um,
1: oh. I, I don't recall, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a bit more, Calm than we thought it
0: would be. Yeah, no, because I have it, and it's funny mm-hmm. because I am not somebody who ever salts my food. Like I, I know people who sit down and they just immediately start salt. Mm-hmm. I've never done that, um, but getting these results definitely did make me more cognizant of, you know, the fact that first of all, seventy percent of our salt consumption is not from the salt shaker, so you know, but from processed foods and things like that. So it definitely, it is always in the back of my head. I didn't know where. Are, you know, that's because I'm a nutrition doctor and I love this stuff, but, um, I think it is interesting. I, I do think it's important, you know, um, to, cause it, it can be overwhelming. So to hone in on key findings like that. So what are, you know, we, we don't have that much time left, but let's talk about kind of what you think some of the most robust genetic associations that we have now, that are actionable, let's focus on those. And also kind of some of the more exciting up and coming, you know, that you maybe, maybe you can give us a sneak peek into your lab that you're working on unpublished studies about, you know, for our audience, I'm trying to get a little bonus info, but you know, what are, what are some of the most robust from your perspective? I I certainly have some that I think about, but, um, and then, you know, some of the most exciting.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I think one of the most robust and certainly one of the most replicated findings and also the one that seems to to relate to the greatest proportion of the population is the so-called caffeine gene, uh, the CYP1A2. Uh, And what's interesting is oftentimes, again, I'm giving a talk and and someone will say, oh, I'm definitely a slow metabolizer because, you know, if I have a cup of coffee after two in the afternoon, it keeps me up at night. Uh, But as I mentioned, the the stimulating effects of caffeine um, are not due to this particular gene. In fact, we were still very intrigued by what causes, you know, caffeine in the afternoon to keep some people up and and others not. And we actually identified another gene. uh, It's called the adenosine receptor, which is expressed in the central nervous system. So regions of the brain that are responsible for that stimulating effects of caffeine. So in some people, caffeine binds more tightly to those receptors and causes those stimulating signals for a longer period of time. Uh, But that doesn't mean that caffeine is either good for you or bad for you. It just explains those acute stimulating effects of caffeine. Uh, And so the only way to know if you're a fast or slow metabolizer really is through a genetic test. We, We were hoping there was some kind of behavioral response that can predict that so that you don't need a genetic test. Uh, And This is work that we did in our earlier days, uh, but none of the genes that we looked at were able to um, uh, indicate whether or not caffeine is good or bad for you. We can predict certain genes based on the stimulating effects, but in terms of health. So uh, again, that I would say is the one that seems to be most popular because You know, few people are indifferent to caffeine. It's either something they seek daily or they avoid it for various reasons. Um, Another one that I think is also very popular and and the findings are very robust uh, comes in the field of weight management. So there's all kinds of fad diets out there, right? You know, you have your low fat, your low carb, your paleo, your keto, your South Beach, and, you know, the list goes on. And the reason why these fad diets persist is because they actually work in some people. So you know you can do it by trial and error if you're someone who's trying to lose weight and say, okay, well my neighbor you know did well on a high protein diet like let's say an Atkins diet. I'm you know I'm going to give that a try. Um, and so you know you sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And We now have evidence for certain genetic markers. Now, we're not trying to predict obesity with genetics. There are hundreds of genetic variations that are associated with being overweight or obese. The question that we're asking specifically is, can we use genetics to identify a particular dietary approach that's more likely to work? Uh, And so again, there's work that came out of Luke Hughes group at Harvard that uh, where they conducted this two year randomized controlled clinical trial, looking at a high protein diet versus low protein diet. And those who had a particular version of the FTO gene lost a considerably greater amount of body fat on the high protein diet, and they maintained it two years later. That has since been replicated by a number of different research groups, uh, our research group included. Uh, In fact, we did this in a multi ethnic population and we looked at a group of East Asians and found that, sure enough, those who have the AA genotype of the FTO gene are the ones, the only ones who benefit from a high protein diet. So, you know, you can do it by trial and error or you can, you know, get a genetic test and find out if you're part of that 25, percent of the population
0: that will in fact benefit from a high protein diet. And I just interrupt real quick. I did have a breakthrough. That was one of the most, you and I talked about this before, but that was one of the very actionable things that I had with a patient who was a man and he was a vegetarian. Uh, just for moral reasons, he just didn't, and he did have that, and he was really having a hard time losing fat and gaining muscle, and, um, you know, I did the genetic testing finally out of frustration that I just wasn't able to help him succeed, or to convince him to eat more protein, and he had that variant, and it really changed his thinking, and completely transformed his physique too, which was really interesting, Mm -hmm. so I have definitely found that to be clinically useful, especially because, you know, we really have two extremes kind of with the vegan vegetarian diet, which just Mm -hmm. may not naturally be high enough in protein to support weight loss in some people. And then, you know, we have the keto and paleo on the other side, which may have a lot unnecessarily of protein, where sometimes it's a burden for them to eat that much. But I so I definitely have found that to be tremendously useful. Mm -hmm. Um, So others, I mean, that I've found, I I think that, you know, and and Jose uh, from Tufts, uh, my, you know, the APOA2 in terms of response to saturated fat, um, I definitely have been, you know, you find that useful, especially in guiding people. That would be somebody, you know, I think how you are saying it, like how I like to think about it from the consumer standpoint is, you know, what diet specifically can I address? So, for example, keto, which is very high in saturated fat. If somebody has that apoA2 genetic variant, you know, I'm going to have a conversation with them that you know, or maybe we need to do a different keto uh, that higher in just plant-based fats and not so much saturated fat. So. Um, I found that one very useful in my practice. Um, What are some of the more kind of cutting edge? Well, and the vitamin D I think is very important, particularly in the time of COVID where we know there may be an association between low levels of vitamin D. Um, and and you know severity of illness or even you know suscept- susceptibility to illness. So I think knowing that there's differences, can you do, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that, the vitamin D, because I think people are confused about that a little bit too.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some uh, evidence of a link between um, insufficient levels or low blood levels of vitamin D. Uh, and, uh, and COVID, as well as other kinds of infections. Um, I think, that, I mean, the jury is still out on that because there are some, again, some inconsistencies, and that could be due to other genetic factors. Uh, in fact, um, you know, blood levels of, of vitamin D alone might not be a sufficient predictor. And, you know, you asked me about some of our, you know, uh, up-and-coming research. Well, a paper that we just published a couple of months ago Uh, looked at the link between blood levels of vitamin D and the severity of premenstrual symptoms. Uh, So some women experience, you know, terrible PMS that is basically, you know, incapacitating and they're out of commission for a couple of days of, of the month. Uh, and there's been some, again, inconsistent studies on the role of vitamin D in alleviating some of those symptoms, whether they're mood-related symptoms or whether they're uh, symptoms like uh, cramps or, or fatigue. Uh, and we found that a variation in uh, the vitamin D receptor. So this affects how the blood levels interact with the cells that impact uh, all these other conditions related to, uh, to PMS. And that, again, uh, vitamin D had the complete opposite effect. So high levels improved some symptoms in some women, but in others, it actually made it worse. And this is important because, you know, this explains why we shouldn't just be telling everybody to take supplements because it can actually make things worse. And that's something that a lot of people just don't consider. They figure, well, you know, I can afford it. So if it, you know, it's either going to help me or it won't do anything well it might actually make things worse and cause harm. So this is another advantage of knowing uh, your genetics.
0: Yeah, no, it's, 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 all this stuff is i don't know if I, our listeners are as excited as i am about all this stuff but i really think i mean i know i know that this is the future of of medicine and medical nutrition and and it's interesting you know that the national institute of health has really set out a 10-year plan from 2020 to 2030 to really grow this field as much as possible and get the most you know robust you know science that is available. So, um, any any other exciting uh, tips or interesting case studies? I know you know that athlete that I was talking about, or the the patient. It was interesting too because, uh, and you and I talked about this. Is he had a genetic very variant that made his requirements for vitamin b12 higher and that's another thing that on a vegan or vegetarian diet you may not get adequate amounts of b12 so for him going through this report i think i found like three very actionable things um, that really helped me help him, which which was which was so cool. I mean, that doesn't always happen. That they're they're so relevant to the patient. Like if I say, "Oh, you need more vitamin A," they're like, "Okay, yeah, I don't really care about that." But if I can really tie it to a, a goal that they can achieve or that they can results that they can see, whether it's blood work or body composition or even how they feel with gluten or lactose um, it's a game changer for me. So as we, as we finish up any other, any other exciting things or case studies that will, uh, will inspire everybody to go out and get this test and then consult with me. No, I'm just kidding. I can't handle all the volume well, if they do.
1: No, I mean, it's interesting. You had mentioned about this, uh, the, uh, the particular case that you had with the, uh, the male who was, uh, vegan or vegetarian by choice. And, you know, there was frustration and kind of, you know, you thought maybe there was some, you know, obvious steps that they could take uh, to improve it, and then it, and then it wasn't working. So then you kind of went to the genetic test. But you know, people often ask me, you know, who's a candidate? Who? What's a good? Uh, you know, who's a good candidate for genetic testing? And my answer is, if you eat and drink and you care about your health, then you're a good candidate. Uh, you don't have to wait till you have a problem or that you've been diagnosed with heart disease or that you underwent a con- tuple bypass surgery Um, because usually by then, you know, it's a little bit too late. You're already down the path of, of a disease. Um, Of course it's never too late because obviously the sooner you can make lifestyle changes of which diet is probably the most impactful, uh, then that will obviously add years to your life and quality years. Um, But we have a lot of people who are, you know, uh, ostensibly healthy uh, and want to know what to do to remain that way. Uh, and so again, it's something that can can benefit everyone. Um, it's also interesting you had mentioned you know two or three things that you focused on with with a patient. And when we first launched our our uh, test, we had a report that consisted of only seven genes. Mm. And at the time, you know some said, "Oh, why just seven genes? You know, this company offers thousands of of genetic markers. And I said, well, we know the science and there's absolutely, you know, there aren't thousands of recommendations and there are even studies that we can give you information on so many genes. As the science grew, we then were able to add more markers, but based on the science. So we're now up to 70 genes. So that was over the course of 10 years, a lot of science in that decade. Um, and so, again, the 70 genes, um, you know, not all of them necessarily have to result in 70 different changes that right. I have to make, as you say. And this is why it's valuable to have the practitioners say, OK, for you, where these are the things that are of major concern, here are the things I want you to focus on. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more uh, valuable data in the report and, and take a look at it and see where else you can make some changes. But you know, focus on some of that low hanging fruit, where you are likely to see more, more immediate benefits.
0: Yeah, no, that's, it's amazing. It's it's very cool. And, 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 you know, for anybody who's listening, you can actually, you know, go, the website is Nutra genomics with an X at the end. Uh, and they can learn more about the test. There's different types of tests for sport for fertility. Now you have it for skin health. Um, I think it's, you have it for vegan vegetarian diet so that people can mm-hmm. And really hone in on that, so I applaud your commitment to science, and I, I do. I love this stuff. I could talk to you for hours, but I'm not sure that our listeners would be quite as interested as I am in going deep into the science of it. But thank you so much for joining me today. I think this has been a, a fascinating conversation, and I, I look forward to working with you. You know, in the future to. To grow this field as much as possible because I think um, it's incredibly important and it's kind of fun to see my teenage, you know, passions come to life. So uh, Dr. El-Sahimi, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you.
1: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure and always love chatting with you.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina, where I take the latest science from the expert's mouth and translate it into actionable, practical items. I hope you've learned a lot today. Hit subscribe, give us comments, send us questions. We want to hear from you. I always want to discuss what matters to you and how I can help you make your life better. So tune in every week, Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina. We'll see you soon.